This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Galley. Our guest this week is Dan Bossi, president of Ag Resource Company. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry provides individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Dan Bozzi next. America's crop insurance industry is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. The National Crop Insurance Services provide individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Congress will soon write a new farm bill to protect U.S. farmers from a global ag industry that is much different than when the 14 Farm Bill was approved. Dan Bossy, president of Ag Resource Company, reports increased planted acres, a shift in currency values, and competitor tax policy have created a much different paradigm for U.S. agriculture and the globe. We're no longer the low-cost producer. We're actually the high-cost producer of many of the exporting nations around the world. And so that gives us a much different flavor and, and, and outlook going forward. And in saying that, it's part of the reason why U.S. net farm income has been declining for the last four years and is now about half of where it was back in 2013. So we are writing a farm bill that has uh, got many potholes for the U.S. farm uh, farmer. By that, I'm saying uh, his, uh, his, uh, it's an operational crisis. It's not a liquidity or it's not a, how should I say it, a leverage crisis. This is a ding into the balance sheet each, each and every year. And so somehow this farm bill needs to address that in terms of uh, safety nets and uh, uh, profitability for the farmer going forward so can he, he can better adjust to this world marketplace. I recall the Secretary of Agriculture that told producers to plant it fence row to fence row that we would sell it to the globe. And it wasn't long after that an embargo came in and started a downfall. We are in a production cycle today where we have a tremendous capacity to produce and a new administration that seems to have more of a protectionist attitude than some others. Is this a red flag and should policy consider this position that we're in? I would hope policy would consider it. You know, when we look at the trade references we are all making under this new administration, they all seem to be pointed at somehow towards uh, limitations in terms of exports and demand and that American farmers should be first. But unlike other prior episodes, and we're seeing this with Mexico right now, uh, many importers and many users have alternatives. And so unlike the embargoes of the past, uh, which if you think back, of course, to the embargo of the 1970s, then under Nixon, because we are all fearful about running out of food and that the Russians had overbought the position, uh, that embargo really opened up the southern Brazil, Rio Grande de Sul, from the Japanese-looking alternative uh, in terms of a supplier. Then if we go back to the, of course, Carter embargoes, uh, that gave the Europeans a different leg in terms of exporting their products. And so our hope is that we continue into a relatively free trade environment in which we are all somewhat competitive in the world marketplace. Unfortunately, disadvantages U.S. farmer because of the uh, reserve status of the U.S. dollar. But that being said, uh, I think very dangerous to consider any protectionist policies uh, that would emanate uh, ultimately adversely affecting agriculture. Should we be surprised that Mexico is now looking to and making strides toward 
opening the door for crop supplies from the southern hemisphere, Brazil and Argentina? I, I don't think we should be surprised. I mean, if we look at this year's Brazilian corn crop and this year's Argentinian crop, it's a record uh, net supply of corn in that part of the world. And so they will be exporting almost a billion bushels more than before. So it's not a question of availability. It's really a question of price and tariffs. So if the Mar- Argentinian and Brazilian prices come lower, as we would expect with time, uh, we would imagine that Mexico will see this as a better lo- a logistical uh, opportunity, potentially, assuming they adjust their tariffs and assuming that freight rates remain, remain generally low. Where we have, an, of course, advantage to Mexico is due to our cheap freight. But nonetheless, uh, Mexico is a very proud country. And should we continue, continue the saber rattling, I would imagine that Argentinian corn, uh, Brazilian soybeans or Brazilian soy meal will find its way into that country. What do you see are the opportunities and the challenges as we renegotiate the North American Free Trade Agreement? Well, I think the opportunities are, are really, again, enhancing uh, agricultural production and, and, and exports to that country, though I worry that as we get to the bargaining table, that at that point in time, when it maybe be late summer or early fall, that indeed uh, Argentinian and Brazilian corn offers and soybean offers will be cheaper and the Mexicans will be pointing directly to that. Again, I'm a free trader. As an economist, I just think that's where the world needs to be. And even if the Mexicans were to stand aside on NAFTA and we went back to a WTO, which would be a 3% tariff, I don't think that would be horrible. Where I would, of course, hope this administration starts to understand and pay attention is that, you know, anything uh, more onerous than that would be adverse to American agriculture and be adverse to, of course, I believe, our U.S. economy. So uh, the Mexicans have been a little patient with us. I say that uh, with tongue-in-cheek, but I do believe that this administration is uh, starting to hear from better sources how important that trade is. And if you notice against the Chinese, uh, they've not, of course, raised the currency issue. And in Mexico, we're starting to see the peso do better. So my hope is that clearer thinking and cooler minds prevail and that ultimately we move back to a negotiating table and look at NAFTA. But within that framework, we continue to understand the importance of our neighbors to the south in agricultural trade. So when I think of this past week, Vice President Pence spending time in Japan, and clearly Japan was one of the crown jewels of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, what the U.S. is no longer a part of. What do we have at stake with the Japanese, especially now as they're pursuing uh, TPP without us, and seem to be reluctant to jump into a bilateral deal with the U.S.? Well, every buyer like Japan, and, and, and as we deal with import-exporters around the world, it really all comes down to price, Jeff. And so, you know, there's a little allegiance, if you will, but uh, the U.S. has, of course, the Japanese market as a dominant supplier of corn, and that's now starting to change. Uh, we've even seen some cargoes of Chinese corn working into that country relative to price. So, indeed, if uh, others are offering their abundance at a cheaper price, uh, they will take it in Japan, and that's the new global uh, framework that we now will live in. We were hoping under TPP that, of course, that level playing field would be offered to everyone, and then U.S. farmers would be competing on that price relationship. But, indeed, if those countries decide to keep tariff levels somewhat higher against the U.S., it makes it that much more difficult for the U.S. farmer going forward. It seems as if we are one drought away from an explosion of the marketplace and another good crop year against facing perhaps some of the lowest prices that we've seen in some time. How much of a hinge point do we have on production in the globe? Let's put it this way. Our our relationship in terms of trade has been declining, and we have an abundance of buffer stock in the globe right now. So if we had a supply dislocation drought in the United States, obviously that would have a bullish impact as 
investment money would rush into the markets, and for a short period of time, we'd have higher prices. But we at Ag Resource now would argue that because we now produce major crops in each hemisphere, that that rally would be short-term. In other words, three to five months, maybe six months, and then, of course, we'd get back to the bearish thesis and theme that now prevails because we don't have enough demand building across the globe. Uh, but it's now the supply dislocations that provide the uh, vitality on the upside. It's no longer the demand trends, even though China is going to take record amounts of soybeans. The world is producing more food than we need. And U.S. exports at one point were as high as uh, 60-some percent uh, some 30 years ago. Now we dropped under 30 percent. This year, Ag Resources forecasting a number close to 27.5 percent of our dominance of world trade. And that's the real problem as we go forward. Somehow the United States either needs to become a bigger value-added producer of different commodities, or we got to see our trade influence increase if we're going to keep American agricultural healthy. There was a period of time in previous farm bills that we were really about supply management, and then we shifted to more of a risk management farm policy. Is it time to go back? It's difficult to go back, Jeff. That's what I would say. I mean, if we look back in history of agriculture, uh, as an economist, it's always been oversupply, which has been our nemesis. Uh, We've had these periods in which policy, let's take biofuels for one, have bumped up markets for, you know, lengthy periods of time, five to seven years. Uh, But looking back in history, it's been oversupply, which has really been the problem for American agriculture and, and what I would call is depressed revenue streams. The problem is in writing this farm bill, if we were to, let's say, uh, increase our CRP acreage and lift the cap at 24 million and maybe take it back to something closer to 40, that would only cause stimulation of a farmer down in Brazil, Argentina, Russia, Canada, Australia. And, and so somehow that supply lever is diminished these days because the globalization of, of agriculture. And again, as I look at things, there's either two avenues. We either have to increase what I would call value-added trade by coming up with new ideas or products or somehow finding ourselves at taking a bigger slice of the world export market. Uh, world exports look to be difficult with the dollar at this price, but if you were to tell me that the U.S. dollar were to depreciate 10 or 20 percent, then, of course, that pendulum would swing back in favor of the United States. But our policy in the United States government has always been one of a strong dollar, and that really does work across against the U.S. farmer. My view going forward on this whole thing is that writing a farm bill is probably never more difficult than as I see it today. It's just because that supply lever is not there to be pulled. I think farmers want to maintain full production, but our research at at Egg Resource would suggest that the balanced U.S. stock use ratios going forward in the next five years would demand a, oh, 17 to 22 million acre decline in U.S. farmed acres if that's going to be happening. And, And again, that's a significant set aside program. But that just shows the structure of oversupply that the world marketplace in the U.S. is now dealing with. If you're taking that many acres out of production, then one of the first things that I think of is how do you pay for it? Uh, Those acres have been profitable in times past, either through a government program of the CRP or when it came out into production for crops. Idling that would mean that revenue needs to come from some source. It really does. I don't think uh, compared to the U.S. budget, it's a tremendous amount of money, but it would really prove some stresses on, on other avenues in terms of getting revenue. And so it would have to probably have some cuts, if you will, in the revenue insurance program or something otherwise to help uh, that balance out. But again, as a politician, I don't think agriculture and our state of life, if you will, is that big of a strain on a budget that uh, is exceeding, you know, uh, uh, 80% in terms of food stamps at the USDA. So 
I, I say that, but I do think that ultimately there will have to be some type of set-aside provisions forthcoming if we're to get more balance. But I, I'm, again, concerned about the message it sends to other world farmers. Dan, our conversation is more about policy than specifics on commodity price, but price does come into policy at a, at a measure. At the time of our conversation, uh, New Crop November soybeans are around nine fifty, nine sixty a bushel. And new crop corn is in the 375, 380, 85 range. If the weather stays good for Brazil, the balance of their soybean harvest and the Serfrina corn crop coming in, and if the U.S. has a, a, a normal planting season and a normal uh, growing season, what could we expect those prices to be in the fall when policymakers are really gearing up to put pen to pad on policy? Uh, looking at the additional supply of corn and soy from Brazil and Argentina, along with what we have in the United States, our modeling of price for harvest lows uh, in the upcoming season would be down somewhere between 285 and 310 a bushel on December corn futures. Uh, and November soybeans, that number would be between 8, 810 and 850 a bushel. And so there's still maybe a dollar, dollar 30 of downside risk in beans and maybe as much as 80 to 90 cents in corn. And that's troubling going forward. Again, if you did have supplies, we'd be worried about weakening cash basis levels as storage became relatively constrained in the Midwest. So that cash market could even be as low as two and a half or two sixty on corn. Uh, this would, of course, raise the its, uh, exposure to the U.S. government to larger payments under uh, either uh, the public uh, insurance programs that are there. Uh, and again, uh, when I look forward, I, I, I worry about corn being closer to let's say two seventy five or three dollars for long periods of time unless we don't have some significant weather problems in terms of dislocation of supply in the Midwest. So what we're talking about is a major income shift, even on top of what we've seen over the previous four years, because the numbers that we're at today are already below the cost of production for a number of producers. If the fall forecast is accurate with regard to weather and production and storage as you've suggested, we're even farther into red ink. Jeff, the piles keep building, and that's the problem. I mean, we at Ag Resource would think about a corn end stock number of maybe 2.5 or 2.7 billion bushels. And so, as I suggested, those piles would keep maintaining themselves because the trend line yield is advancing quicker at the moment than, let we say, domestic consumption or even including trade, let's say, international total demand. So with that being said, that's the problem, and that's why I need to cut back acreage. And ultimately, if the government is willing to take on that responsibility, the market will take it into its own jurisdiction, and that's what we worry about going forward. Again, the price declines are not as steep as we've seen in the last three or four years, but nonetheless, they're still there, which will continue to compress farm income, at least on a net revenue basis. When we talk to John Motter, the chair of the United Soybean Board, they're looking for value added. They're looking for opportunity. When we talk to individuals in the grain industry, they're talking about a bioenergy opportunity for fuel. So, uh, Dan, what do you see are opportunities either that we already have or opportunities that we could develop for this value added to put dollars on the bottom line? Well, about the only thing I can give the administration some hope for nearby would that in the biodiesel field, if we could move to, let's say, a producer credit. Now, again, it's not creating 
uh, a lot of additional demand, but it would be helpful. Uh, short of that, uh, other than maybe getting back to thinking about the CRP program or some set-aside provisions, value added in terms of trying to look at ways to getting more corn either into the fuel supply or bioplastics or uh, different means and methodologies of using our grains has got to be considered. And Again, I don't have any uh, silver bullets for you today to tell you exactly what that new demand will be, but I do want legislators and scientists and others to at least think about the future of having too much grain and what we can do to consume it. There's means and methods that we can look at value added, but we need to make it our our, our feature and our, our focus going forward, and I think that's the key here, and I'll leave it up to the scientists to find different methodologies of utilizing grain and utilizing uh, maybe more feed in, within our livestock sector. Illinois Congressman John Chimkus on this program just a few days ago suggested an attempt to rewrite the renewable fuel standard. Uh, is there caution or are there thoughts that you would suggest to policymakers as we approach a 2022 decision on RFS? Well, I would caution everybody. We, we, we are still going to need an oxygen in, in, in terms of our fuel supply. And I do think that ethanol plays an important role, not only for the economy, but for the U.S. farmer going forward. So we want to be competitive. I do believe that cheap corn prices will allow ethanol to be part of our fuel supply I guess what worries me more than, than the RFS is a continuing electrification of our auto supply with maybe as many 5 to 7 million cars being available by 2021 or 2022 by ag resource estimates. And then what we call this thesis of decarbonization where the world will somehow use or let's see stabilize energy consumption somewhere between 2024 and 2028. So there's lots of things happening in technology today, both on energy and agriculture, on the energy side of things, I think it somehow diminishes the use of fossil fuels and, and biofuels. What's the effect of low commodity prices on livestock production, and does that create better opportunity domestically or globally for the U.S. livestock industry? Well, it has. As we've seen uh, grain prices come down, we've seen, of course, some farmers try to walk that grain off the farm. We're seeing per capita consumption of both beef and pork rising. In fact, this will be the first year in which Americans look like they'll, they'll consume on a per capita basis about the same amount of pork and beef. So that's all good news. And we would imagine that as meat prices stay relatively low amid the burden of supply, uh, again, the U.S. will produce record amounts of red meat this year, that export opportunities and domestic consumption will remain relatively robust. So we do like, of course, the opportunities in terms of meats. Well, Dan, I want to thank you very much for the opportunity to have shared thoughts here as we look at the Congress uh, preparing for a new farm bill. Sir, this is Open Mic, and you have an open forum. Jeff, again, thank you for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, uh, I, I just want to kind of close with a, a little statement, a little bit about the global agricultural situation. Uh, we all talk about feeding 9 billion people by 2050, and that, uh, that uh, phenomenon is still underway. However, I would say that, uh, as uh, USDA has suggested recently, it may take another 50 million acres globally, which is still a large amount of land to bring under cultivation. Yet, at a resource, we're measuring that the world is producing about 2.8% uh, more food annually. Uh, that's getting back to the old Green Revolution days of the Norman Borlaug time frame. And so uh, we've really started to ramp up food production. We calculate that including demographics and rising caloric intake, the world needs about 1.8% more food. So at least as of today, we're producing about one more 1% more food than we really need. Now, there's always something called climate that could come into this and throw uh, a real monkey wrench into everything. 
Uh, global warming, if you will, right now seems to be a favorable thing for world agriculture, but its volatility is something I think we need to watch going forward. So at the moment, we've got this dilemma with too much food, and it's not only here, but it's around the world. And when I go to places like Russia or South America, folks ask me about, is there any chance to have an OPEC-type relationship in agriculture? My response is always the same, that cartels never work that ultimately they fall apart as the weakest member overproduces. But in the case of agriculture, when you restrict food from people, that's never a good idea. But it just shows you that it's not only U.S. farmers, it's global farmers that are enduring some of the oversupply features that we're now seeing. And it really suggests that if you're going to have any lasting recoveries, it has to come from, again, increases in value-added, new legislation, and ultimately maybe adverse weather, but that adverse weather is only a short-term phenomenon. So, again, Jeff, I've enjoyed being with you, and thank you again for your program. Our thanks to Dan Bossick, President, Ag Resource Company, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nally. 